Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Let's be upfront about metastatic breast cancer. When someone is diagnosed as having metastatic breast cancer, which is also referred to as stage four breast cancer, it means that the disease has spread from the breast to another part of the body. This might happen months after being diagnosed or many years later. Metastatic breast cancer is not curable, but there are many treatments that can help control it. If one treatment stops working, there's usually another that can be tried. In this edition of Upfront, we're going to address some of the many questions that come up when you're told you have metastatic breast cancer and also empower you to speak up when it comes to your treatment and care. To do that, we welcome oncologist and BCNA board member, Professor Fran Boyle. Good morning. Also joining us is Georgie Fife Jamison, who was diagnosed with early breast cancer in 2009 and then metastatic breast cancer in 2017 at the age of 42. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. So, Fran, I think it's important to probably start by saying everybody's story is different. As an oncologist, how do you decide what treatment is best? There are a lot of factors that go into the decision about uh, what treatment is best and a lot of that comes fortunately from research. So in breast cancer we're fortunate that there are a number of different kinds of breast cancer that have different targets for drug treatment and we can talk about that more in a minute. And also there have been a lot of clinical trials done in the past. We fortunately do have a lot of drugs and the aim is to try and choose the most appropriate thing for that patient not just what their cancer is doing, but also what their life is doing. What are their needs? What are their symptoms? What are their travel plans? All of those things will come into it. So for that reason, you may find that you're taking quite a different pathway through treatment compared to somebody else. Georgie, you were initially diagnosed with early breast cancer and then it spread. Take us through that moment when you discovered that it had spread to another part of your body? Um, well, I was about, I was 32 when I was diagnosed with early breast cancer. So because I was young, I did always have that niggling feeling after my treatment that it would probably return at some point in my life. But when I was uh, 41, uh, I wasn't ready for that diagnosis. Um, but once I'd gone to the doctor with my symptoms um, and it was confirmed really quickly, um, I was shocked, um, but I felt very much um, looked after and uh, a treatment plan was developed really quickly for me. So um, it was difficult to manage initially, but, uh, but I'm doing okay now. Fran, from a medical point of view, that must be quite a, a common reaction is shock and fear. I think that first six months and particularly the first few months are really a very difficult time for most people. And after that, 
you know, hopefully things settle down a little bit. Um, usually the disease can come under control with treatment. Patient starts to feel better. If they've got back pain or bone pain, that starts to improve and they get back to some of their more normal activities. And that first sort of panic uh, settles down. After that, yes, you're likely to need to change treatment at some stage, but usually we're a little bit ahead of the game by then. We're doing scans on a regular basis, perhaps doing regular blood tests. And when the cancer starts to change or move to another part of the body, we're not so far behind and we can change treatment or move to that, that next step in the pathway before you get sick again. And that's the aim of the game is to sort of even out those bumps uh, of time when you feel unwell and by moving treatment as soon as you see a change in what the cancer is doing. What are some of the experiences you had with the course of your treatment since being diagnosed with metastatic? Yeah, I mean, the initial shock was was difficult. And, and as Fran said, it was definitely the first six months probably that were really hard and really the uncertainty, trying to manage the uncertainty of how it was going to roll out, um, given that really it's uh, incurable. Um, but being told that there are several lines of treatment available but not really knowing how long each one is going to last for how many there are and uh, how they're going to impact you kind of on a day-to-day -day basis as well so really for me the uncertainty of, of all of this was really hard because I uh, like to to plan to kind of know what's happening um, but I was you know given a lot of assurance or reassurance by the oncologist and, and um, nurses as well um, most of the time. What are some of the things that you did to try and deal with that uncertainty? Um, I did try to, well it took me a while to come around to, to not looking such uh, so far ahead so uh, kind of managing things on a shorter term basis but I started to prioritise what was important in my life and um, kind of look at my work options as well, um, just, just to try and make things manageable. Um, I do a lot of exercise and uh, when I was able to, um, that really helped with my physical and mental well-being as well. What are some of the side effects of your treatment? Have there been any? I've been pretty fortunate um, so far. I had a bit of tiredness on uh, my first treatment. Um, the third line that I'm on now, um, as well, I've uh, experienced more tiredness and some nausea and loss of appetite, but um, that's kind of a bit more under control now. I feel like I've been pretty fortunate so far in the three treatments that I've had um, in terms of, of side effects. Fran, with choosing treatments, is it a real balancing act? How do you balance the medical benefits versus the possible side effects and quality of life? I think we have a lot of research in metastatic breast cancer now that shows that your best quality of life will usually come when the cancer is under control. And it's actually cancer progression that makes people feel unwell primarily. And I think, Georgie, um, what you've described is nausea, loss of appetite, fatigue. Those are actually quite common symptoms of cancer, not just of cancer treatment. So usually once the treatment starts to work people start to feel better and so the most important thing is to have a treatment that's working that is in a dose that's appropriate for that individual and that might take a little bit of time to work out 
yes, there are recipes and there are, you know, recipe books that say start with this dose, but that's not going to be right for everybody. So there is a little bit of an art form in just adjusting the dose over that first few months to make sure the blood tests are in the right place, it's doing what you want to do, uh, and it's not causing too many side effects. So there's actually no benefit in having extra side effects just for the sake of it, uh, because quality of life is going to be that balance of side effects of treatment and, most importantly, control of the disease. In the time that I've worked in, with patients with metastatic breast cancer, we've been through a couple of different eras. And the first one was where, uh, based on the treatment of some other kinds of cancer, people tested building up a huge pile of chemotherapy and giving it all in one big splash to see if you could eradicate the cancer, so so-called high-dose chemotherapy. That was so toxic that you had to give a bone marrow transplant to actually help patients recover. And sure, there were some people who did well. There were also people who died as a consequence of the treatment. And in the end, clinical trials showed that it was no better for overall survival and was so much more toxic. And that must be really tempting for, for people when they're diagnosed with any sort of cancer, let alone metastatic. I'd imagine your immediate reaction would be like, throw everything at it. Let's just give it everything we've got. I'd rather feel unwell for a shorter amount of time and hope that it has maximum impact. That's exactly right. And people are often asking the question, you know, I don't feel sick enough with this stuff you're giving me. Is it really working? Because in early breast cancer, we do tend to give fairly high doses and really push things quite hard. Now, looking back at that era, it's possible that some of those breast cancers that respond really well to chemotherapy, like triple negative, we could perhaps revisit that era but we know so much more about breast cancer biology now that we know for hormonal breast cancer that would be a super dumb idea. Mm. It just was never going to work. But they didn't know that back then. After that era, we then all recoiled from that and started to stretch our treatments out as long as possible. So I call that the limbo era where, you know, how low can you go, only give one treatment at a time and stretch them out as long as possible. And for some kinds of breast cancer, that was actually a pretty good idea. What we're now tending to do is combine treatments where it's possible. And so the sort of dual era where you have hormone-blocking treatment and something that Georgie's had, uh, which is ribocyclic, with that often has a better effect than just a hormone-blocking treatment by itself. And so now we're often pairing up treatments that work in different ways to try and get a better benefit. Okay. And I think we're going to see that survival improves with that third strategy without too much extra side effect burden. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before that quite often that what might be a side effect could also be a progression. How do you manage fear of progression, which would be very real, versus what could actually be the reality of progression? I think uh, when we're following patients very closely during their treatment, that's often every three or four weeks. So things don't really have a chance to get completely out of hand uh, in that situation. I mean, it's really unlikely that you're going to suddenly die without there being some warning uh, of that. 
Uh, so you can probably take that off the table fairly <laughs> safely. The other thing is that when your oncologist is recommending that you have a scan, uh, what you can do is ask them, what are you expecting it to show? So that you've got some idea ahead of time about what the possible treatment choices might be. It's also a good idea to have your scans as close as possible to your appointment so that they're not going to um, leave you waiting for days for the result. And on the other extreme, if you have them too close and there isn't a report, that's annoying as well because you're held up you know, with uncertainty, as Georgie mentioned, often one of the worst things to deal with. So a day or so before is usually quite good, making sure your scans are being done where your oncologist wants them and where they can rapidly get access to someone to check them if there's a question and reducing the amount of uncertainty that you carry, I think is pretty important. Otherwise it does your head in a bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think, you know, oncologists or my oncologists tend to be um, good about uh, kind of suggesting what might be next. And I feel as a patient that's uh, really important to have a bit of an indication um, because, yeah, that uncertainty is kind of always present. Um, so I know there's, uh, yeah, for example, I was on a clinical trial for my second line of treatment and they were monitoring me through regular scans um, and tumour marker levels as well. So um, I was being kept in the picture with all of that. But it's always a really nerve-wracking time waiting for your scan results, mm. um, definitely, because fear of progression is very real. The tumour markers become the holy grail a little bit, don't they? Oh, they can. And I do have patients who've got husbands who are engineers who turn up with the Excel spreadsheet <laughs> with the tumour yeah. markers plotted on them and every minor variation causes panic. And not everybody has tumour markers and they are also um, probably more reliable early on in the disease than they are late uh, so if you've had breast cancer for a long time, your tumour markers may not uh, monitor the disease as clearly as they did in the beginning. And that's because as the breast cancer goes along, there may be new changes or mutations in some of those little sets of cells that stop them making the tumour marker. And so that's where being examined, being listened to, really importantly... Uh, and also um, having scans is important as well. So tumour markers by themselves are really not the answer. Have you engaged in any mental uh, therapy, so to speak, that has helped you uh, with fear of progression or with uncertainty? Yeah, I have actually. I've really benefited from some um, sort of psychological support at the hospital that I'm being treated at that was offered to me. So I've had a few psychology sessions, one-on-ones, um, which have been really useful um, to be able to talk about, yeah, for example, the uncertainty of the of, um, and the progression and because that has, has happened. So that's been really useful. Um, the other thing I do is I go to a um, peer support group. So... Um, Women who are in a similar situation to me with metastatic breast cancer um, meet up um, every two or four weeks. Um, we sometimes um, 
there's a presentation by a, a professional, a medical professional. Um, other times it's just a sort of social gathering. Um, and uh, it's really useful because we're all in a similar boat. Uh, we have a really good laugh, which is really nice. Um, but obviously there are many times when we talk about some of the um, serious issues that affect us um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's, uh, yeah, been really helpful to, to access that. I feel fortunate living in the, a city where there are kind of services like that available. BCNA's online network is a, a wealth of information where people can really ask questions that maybe they're not confident to ask Definitely, in another forum. No, yeah, I've accessed that as well and that's been really helpful and the My Journey um, toolkit um, is brilliant too and early on I got um, a copy of the Hopes and Hurdles resource which is brilliant. Um, which really is now thorough. online. We have an online tool so that you can access Fantastic. that sort of information at any time. Yeah. When you were diagnosed, did you make any radical changes to your life? I didn't, um, although I wanted to panic and uh, make major changes. I had assurance from uh, my oncologist and family and friends that, uh, you know, nothing was going to happen majorly quickly. So um, probably 10, 12 months into the diagnosis, it's now been nearly two years, um, I did make a big decision to... Um, stop working. Um, I sold my small business and uh, I've had a few months off work um, and in that time I've uh, had uh, some ex extraordinary experiences. I've been able to travel because I'm on tablet treatment. Um, I've been able to spend more time with um, family and friends and really importantly to me I've um, had the opportunity and the time to do a lot more um, physical exercise, which has done me so much good in kind of physical and, and mental ways. Um, so those were quite big changes. Obviously, giving up work um, is a really big thing. I am in a fortunate position to be able to do that for now. So th that was uh, probably the biggest um, change that I made. I, you know, I, I realise more than ever um, now that um, kind of uh, life is important. You've only got one life and uh, try and make the most of it. BCNA's online network is an active peer-to-peer -peer support community where people affected by breast cancer can find information and connect with others who understand what you're going through. Read posts, write your own, ask a question, start a discussion and support others. The online network is available for you at every stage of your breast cancer journey, as well as your family, partner and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. Frank, could you take us through the first, second and, and third line treatment? So to try and clarify that for people once they're diagnosed. Uh, for most of the types of metastatic breast cancer, for instance, hormonal metastatic breast cancer or HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, there are very well established treatments that people would ordinarily be offered first. And you would only switch to a different treatment if the cancer started to progress or uh, you weren't tolerating the first one. And I take it that that's different for everybody. So it might last for, what, six months 
for one person and longer for another or shorter? Well, oncologists can usually give you an idea based on the clinical trials of what the average amount of time that people stayed on that first line of treatment was. So, for instance, with Herceptin and chemotherapy and pertuzumab added in, it might be two years as the average amount of time. That's not dissimilar to ribocyclib uh, and, and a letrozole, for instance. So maybe about two years would be average. The first two or three months is the real waiting game where you wait to see whether it's kicking in and if it's not, quickly on to something else. And there will be people who will still be on treatment at 10 years. Uh, now, we haven't quite got there yet because we haven't had those drugs for 10 years, but I'm very confident there'll be people who get a very good run and have very sensitive disease. So, so far, we're not so good at picking out who those people are going to be. I wish we were. But most people will need to shift to something else, and that's where the monitoring comes in. Now, for people with triple negative breast cancer, there are a range of different choices for the first-line treatment, and there are often a lot of clinical trials open for them uh, as a first-line choice. So that's a good time if you've got triple negative breast cancer that spreads to ask the question, is there a clinical trial for me? Because they often come up first. For people with the other kinds of breast cancer, those clinical trials are much more likely to be in the second line setting, which is similar to what Georgie's experienced. So you can comfortably jump onto whatever needs to be done first, uh, but as time goes by, start looking around for what your second step might be. And cl clinical trials open and close. They collect their patients, they percolate their results and it takes time. So it's something that's you know open now, uh, may not be open in 12 months time. So you don't want to think too far ahead, but it's good to let your oncologist know if you're interested in clinical trials so that they can keep an eye out for you. That might mean moving to another institution. You may not have treatment in the same place that you did originally. So for some people that's uh, you know a significant challenge, but it's worth putting out those feelers and uh, making sure that you're not missing out if there are opportunities to be involved in research. It is often difficult for people to speak up when they're with health professionals for fear of either sounding silly or just there's so much information to take in. What advice would you give to patients? Well, I love it when people ask questions and um, often when they come into my office, they go, oh, are you going to go first or am I going to go first? And, and usually I'm happy for them to go first, to be honest, as long as they're not clutching their chest or staggering about. Uh, and so preparing for appointments with a list of questions is a really good idea. Making sure you always bring with you a list of your medications, what you're taking in an up-to-date way, what doses you're taking, that's really helpful because you may be getting drugs from a bunch of different people, including your GP, and your oncologist really needs to know exactly what you're on. Actually asking the question of your professional, if this doesn't work as well as we hope, what do you think I might do next? What are the options? Helps to avoid that sense that if you come in and the scan isn't good, you're going to you know, drop off the waterfall in any minute. And also sometimes asking, is there anyone uh, that you know of that would be good for me to see as a second opinion who might have access to clinical trials or to some other thoughts? Because sometimes just chewing things over with a different oncologist 
second opinion consultations, usually people set aside an hour for those, so there's more time. And it's a bit more of a chance to have a strategic discussion rather than, you know, your blood test fine, tick, your scan's fine, tick, you're feeling okay, tick, out the door into the crowded waiting room. So that often can help people just to get a bigger picture sense of how they're doing. Do oncologists take offence if you ask for a second opinion? I suspect some might. Uh, I actually do a lot of second opinion consulting because I think it's fun and I meet some amazing people uh, in that process. But you've got to have the time to do it. And um, people who need a first opinion will always be prioritised. So, you know, you're not going to find a super busy uh, oncologist, you know, willingly giving up that hour if there's a new patient who needs to be fitted in first. So it's not going to happen overnight. And would you, the patient goes to another hospital for a second opinion? Uh, it depends a little bit on what the reason is you're asking for a second opinion. So if you're looking for a particular clinical trial, it's often good to get your oncologist to search where that trial is open and make sure that you're going to someone who's involved in that study. And there are lots of resources um, apps and websites and so forth where oncologists can do that. So if it's a very directed question, um, uh, it's usually good to get them to help you. If it's more like this organisation's not working for me, this relationship's not working for me, this communication's not working for me, I'm frightened, uh, that's probably better either chat with the support group, that can work pretty well, and find out maybe whether there's an institution or an oncologist with a different style, or RCGP for advice, because they'll have had people who've been looked after by different oncologists, and they might have a better chance to match up personalities with people, because it's a really important long-term relationship, the one you have with your oncologist. It's got to work. And it's got to work both ways. They've got to be able to trust you. You've got to be able to trust them. And so sometimes it takes a while to find that right person. Mm. Don't bomb to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we were joking before that uh, oncologists don't have a crystal ball to be able to tell you what's ahead. But in actual fact, Fran, you tell me that you do. Uh, I do have a crystal ball on, on my desk uh, in my office and it's useful for those times when patients turn to you and say, now, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but... And, of course, it's helpful to say, ah, here it is, what would you like to know? Because I think a crystal ball question is one that reveals what's most important to that person, what they're worried about, what their concerns for the future are. And when someone says that to me, I always think... It's so hard to ask those questions. You are so vulnerable when you do that being respectful and trying very hard to answer those questions is really important. So for one person, it might be like, Georgie, what do I do with my business? Um, is it better for me not to be working and so stressed and to be looking after myself better because I'm not going to live forever? For another person, it might be, can I travel? Uh, if I was dying, would you let me know? so that I could go home to my family. If I was running out of treatment options, would you give me a warning? Uh, can I live to see my daughter have her baby? So those questions are just so deep and important and so personal that it's really good to get them out there because your oncologist usually can help you get some idea of whether those things are achievable or not. 
And until the patient asks those questions, maybe the oncologist doesn't know that that you know how important that is to you. So it is important to yeah speak up and and work out what's important to you. I think. And you can relate to what Fran has just said. Very much so. Yeah, or, or those kinds of uh, questions I had from really early on, and some come later on down the track as well. So I think building up a yeah relationship with your oncologist and. Um, and being able to ask those questions and having the confidence um, to do so and feeling like you're going to get some sort of an answer is is really, really helpful. We do actually train oncologists in communication skills, which might surprise you, but uh, they, in fact, are probably the best trained health professionals in the country because it's recognised that it's a tough job and that you don't want your oncology team burning out because of the emotional stresses of the job. So we do train oncologists to talk about prognosis and what we teach them is that you can usually tell people an average, something about what's typical, and that's based on clinical trial results. You can use row and all of the steps of treatment failed, what would be the worst case scenario. And you can also give patients a clue about what would be the best case scenario. So best case scenario, Georgie runs out of money because she lives way too long and we have 25 new drugs by then and so she just steps pleasantly from one to the next. And when she's an old woman, she's regretful that she gave up her cycling business. So that would be a nice problem to have and there will be patients who will, for that, that will work out that way. But it's really important to know what's typical because that gives you a better ability to plan. And just finally, with more and more medications coming onto the market, with more research, metastatic breast cancer doesn't necessarily mean doom and gloom straight off, does it? It's We're getting better and people are living long and well for, for many years. That is the case. And I think your expectation in Australia should be that the care you receive here is really world-class. Thanks to the work of BCNA and your oncologists and your researchers, we do have access to a better selection of drugs than most other places in the world. And you shouldn't feel that, you know, being dead in 10 minutes is what's going to happen when you're first diagnosed. Having said that, everybody rallies around when you're first diagnosed because it is scary. And sometimes they get bored because you live too long. And so having people understand that you still are living with a concerning uh, medical condition, that you have to exert quite a lot of vigilance and really look after yourself, makes it much more like living with a chronic illness or chronic pain, which I've got experience with, and people do get bored with that. So making sure that you're letting people know when you need help and just because you look well doesn't necessarily mean things are okay under the surface. And the final word to you, Georgie. Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate in the sort of 21 months that I've had treatment that I haven't experienced too many side effects. So I've been able to uh, live really quite a, a normal life otherwise. Um, and as I say, being able to do exercise and see family and friends and travel has been uh, really beneficial. So I'm very well looked after and have a lot of support around me. Um, and I have a lot of hope 
Um, there are some incredible treatments out there. I was on a clinical trial for seven months, which I look at as um, a kind of real bonus because it's an extra one to the standard line treatments that are available. Um, so I was really happy to be on that. Um, I was really well looked after. I had a nurse that I um, could ask questions to at any time as well. Um, and I've been told that there are other lines of treatment available um, so I'm feeling optimistic and I, th I feel like the people I know with metastatic breast cancer mostly feel like they're really well looked after and good treatments available. Wonderful. Thank you to you Fran and Georgie for joining us on Upfront, a proud production of Breast Cancer Network Australia with thanks to Cancer Australia. If you want to know more about metastatic breast cancer, there are links to resources on our website, bcna.org.au. This podcast series is intended to provide information, suggestions and upfront discussion about all things breast cancer. Please contact your health professional with any concerns you might have. The opinions of our guests are welcome, but not necessarily shared by BCNA, and we'd love to know your thoughts too by leaving us a message on our feedback page. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being upfront with us.